Mid-market sized businesses are where the true economic action in business really is. They are nimble and agile. They're factories of growth, they lead in innovation, and they're early adopters of tech. These enterprises need the right tools, support and environment to flourish. But sadly, they're often overlooked and undervalued. Not here though. This is the Mid-Market Matters podcast, and I'm your host, Craig West. We'll explore pain points, growth strategies, and how to find the competitive edge. Welcome to SME Radio. In this episode of Mid-Market Matters, we're joined by Michael Clifton. Michael has a very interesting and diverse background and career, uh, including almost 20 years in trade and defence appointments across Asia and the Middle East. And he's obviously got some seriously interesting information and intelligence around dealing with Asia, trade, export, finance, etc. He also speaks Chinese and Japanese. And uh, Michael, firstly, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Craig. Glad to be with you. Excellent. I'm also joined with uh, one of our key partners in Succession Plus, Philip Volk, who's based uh, down in Victoria. And Philip and Michael have actually known each other for many years. I'm not sure exactly how many, Philip, but quite a lot, I understand. Uh, So, Philip, thank you for joining us as well. Thanks, Craig. Great to be here and great to have Michael on board. I'm sure that he's going to add a whole bunch of uh, insight into this thorny issue of China at the moment. It's a very topical issue at the moment. I was actually contacted just this morning by a journalist uh, in my role as the uh, chairman of the SME Association for some comment uh, for them to take back to government around what SMEs feel around China. And I think the summary version and why I'm so excited to have you on board, Michael, is I think the way SMEs feel about China is just confused. They're not really sure um, where it's all up to and what we need to be doing and how, because we're getting multiple mixed messages from all different places. Well, look, no one could be blamed for being confused in the current climate, Craig, because frankly, it's toxic. Um, if you were to devour the newspapers every day uh, in the way that I do, uh, you would be in dire need of therapy and <laughs> as to where the relationship with China stands. Um, I, I don't know where to start with this one, but perhaps I'll start with today's um, Australian Financial Review. Um, so Andrew Liveris, the uh, former head of Dow Chemical, has some very, very useful tips that I would encourage all businesses to be aware, or not just businesses, but business and government. Um, And he makes the point that the security relationship with China should not, to the maximum extent possible, be confused with the economic and trade relationship. Uh, Easy words to say, um, Mm. very challenging path to navigate. Absolutely. So, Michael, I'm very interested in a bit of your background. Obviously, you know, large amount of time in the Australian Army. Um, also obviously working directly with Australian Trade and Investment Commission. Um, You've now retired from that role, but you're still serving as the president of the Australia-China Business Council in New South Wales. So maybe give us a little bit of background. How did you end up here? It's a pretty interesting uh, and diverse career experience. I'll give you a a very brief potted history, Craig. So um, Philip and I joined the Royal Military College back in January of 1978, many, many years ago. Um, But a few short years after graduation, the army sent me off to study Chinese. So in 1985, I was shipped off to Point Cook down there on the shores of Port Phillip Bay. And I spent a year of my life totally immersed in Chinese. And then a couple of years later, I was off to Hong Kong, where I worked with the British military for a couple of years on what could be loosely described as border security operations in Hong Kong. 
I won't go down the Japan path, but to, to distill things back, back in about 2000, I went back to Hong Kong and I was working um, basically in the China space for around three years. And ultimately, I was invited to head up the Australian trade and investment team in China, which you know has about 10, 12 offices across the greater China, around a headcount of over 100. And essentially, we are there to help, or we are there were there, past tense, um, to support Australian companies looking to sell their products into the China market. Now, right. I did right up until the end of 2019, so about six years. Um, uh, then I retired. I head up the Australia-China Business Council. But look, all up, I've spent about 18 to 20 years of my working life working in and around Northeast Asia, whether it's Hong Kong, whether it's mainland China, or whether it's Japan. Um, for better or worse, I've been deeply immersed in North Asia for most of my working life. Okay, so that's a pretty interesting sort of background and experience from the Army to Trade to Australia-China Business Council. Um, why is this such an important thing for businesses to get their head around? I mean, we sort of, at the moment, you know, trade's obviously restricted. Travel's absolutely restricted. We can't go anywhere or do anything in terms of travel, even interstate, let alone over into Asia. Why do we need to get our head around this issue? Look, it, it's topical because, and let, let, let me be fair here on the critics, um, China's actions and behaviours in recent years have been cause for legitimate alarm in, in government circles, all right? So whether it's what's happening in Xinjiang province, whether it's the crackdown in Hong Kong, whether it's detaining Canadians, um, you know, in, in Beijing, whether it's the detention just this week of the Australian journalist, Chen Lei, um, there are things that China is doing that are inexplicable. But let's put that to one side. At the end of the day, China is a 1.3 billion strong population. It is the preeminent arguably the preeminent economic power in our part of the world. Uh, Australian business has no choice other than to engage with that market and to seek to trade and invest with China. It's a market that is too big to ignore. So, Michael, okay. I might just, just ask a question there. I'll sort of um, yep. talk about the size and the importance of China. Um, you say 1.3, 1.4 billion. Um, my first degree was in economics. I don't call myself an economist, but the numbers interest me and ultimately drive a lot of uh, sort of the macro trends. But China's on a trend on a, on a uh, you know a path to modernisation. Um, modernised societies generally are about two thirds urbanised and a third rural. But China just tipped over the halfway point in terms of urbanisation. So if, let's say they're 1.4 billion, so about 700 million people urbanised a couple of years ago. To get to that two thirds, which is another, uh, you know, 17%, there's still another, you know, quarter of a billion or 250 million people still to be urbanised. And that drives a lot of the capital expenditure in China and therefore the demand for steel. So if you sort of put that in Australian terms, there's still another 50 Sydneys to be urbanised. Let me rattle off a, a sort of a, a loose miscellany of points here. Um, against the backdrop, when I first flew into Beijing, it was 1987, thereabouts. And I, to this day, I have a lasting memory of leaving the airport in Beijing, and there were still horse-drawn ca carts on the, the highway linking the airport to the, um, the city. 
Mm. Now, bear that in mind. And today, uh, there's a very prominent Singaporean um, fellow by the name of um, Mahubani, and he makes the point that the Chinese people, the bottom 50% of the Chinese population, have enjoyed the most prosperous 40 years out of their past 4,000. Yeah. It is a staggering thing to realise mm. the speed and the depth of the development that China has gone through in recent years. So bear that in mind. Just in, going back to Phil's numbers, Australia, the Australian economy is, uh, you know, the economists will take me to task here, but roughly $1.5, $1.6 trillion. That's the total size of the Australian economy. China's economy is about 13 to 14 trillion. Now, pre-COVID, a China growing at 6% a year was basically adding close to $1 trillion worth of additional value to its economy each year. So they are staggering numbers. Mm. If you go to Phil's point on urbanisation, China is currently, well, Australia is about 86%, the US is around 80%. So let's use that figure of 80% for Western developed economies, 80% urbanised. China mm. is now around the 60% mark. Yes, still got 20% to go. It's still a, a lot of development to go. Um, you know, just wild and woolly figures here. But, you know, if you're putting 8 to 10 million people into cities each year, um, you're adding about a, a new Japan every 10 to 15 years in China. And a couple of key factoids to bear in mind, once people migrate from the land into the cities, a, it's a significant generator of service, the services economy, so it's generating jobs, employment, and further income. It's a compounding effect. And people who live in cities, rule of thumb here, consume about 50% more calories than people living on the land. And this goes directly to the areas of demand for the things that Australia sells to China. The steel, or the iron ore, sorry, the iron ore and the coal, and um, of course, wine, beef and dairy. Mm. You don't really understand that until you, you know, the scale of it. And um, I remember sitting on the Bund, which is you know, in Shanghai and just seeing barge after barge after barge of Australian uh, iron ore and coal coming up the Bund uh, to be processed, uh, coming up the river. And uh, it was just amazing. And then to see the cities, the cities just growing out of nowhere. Um, but I am very aware that the uh, rate of expenditure on that sort of uh, capital expenditure or infrastructure has slowed down. Look, the, the economists feel, you know, I, unfortunately for my sins, I devour this stuff and it really does my head in because I'm not an economist, I'm just an observer. Um, the, the prophets of doom would say that uh, China cannot, this economic model is not sustainable. Yeah. But Going back to Mahubani's point, it's been sustainable for 40 years and China continues to find a way to muddle it, to muddle through. Um, now, COVID is a setback for everybody in the global economy, but I think I'm right in saying that China is the only, perhaps Vietnam might be in the same boat, but the only economy this year that will actually have positive growth. Yeah. You know, yeah. Alan Kohler last night said India would decline by 30%, yet Ooh. China will continue to grow. Now, is the, the the construction you're alluding to, Phil, the the ghost cities, so-called ghost cities in China, and you know, is that investment, is that economic activity, uh, going to produce um, long-term economic gain? 
the, the economist would would take that issue um, that would take issue with the way in which China is spending money and the way in which stimulus is artificially um, boosting demand for you know yeah. iron or coal steel. Um, now they may well be right, and at some point, you know, those who predict recession sooner or later they will get it right. Yeah, they will. Long and so, short, though, is that China is actually still growing and still got a couple of hundred million people to urbanise. The rate at which they do that, not really, you know, um, super important. But the fact is that it will be a major, continue to be a major driver of consumption of goods and services, the urbanisation and modernisation of China. Uh, for us and in, in the degree to which we participate in that, um, I guess trying to separate out the political or security and the commercial relationship, are we able to do that a little bit? I don't think so, Phil. I, I don't think we can, well obviously at the moment we have, you know, points of pressure whether, it, whether it's barley, whether it's um, yeah. wine, whether it's um, you know, detention of Australian nationals, you know, there, there are pressure points. And notwithstanding what I said earlier about Andrew Liveris encouraging this sort of separation between economic and economics and trade and the security and defence relationship, um, there is spillover. It's inevitable. Um, you know, China itself now is talking about a what they're calling a dual circulation economy, where essentially what they're doing is bracing themselves for. Um, as a, well, I'll, I'll describe it as a defensive measure in response to the American push for decoupling. All right, so, you know, if, if America, well, they already have essentially crushed Huawei's access to the chips they need to sustain their business, um, China will, part of China's response to that is to go down the self-sufficiency path in a, in, in, more, in a way that's more pronounced than it has been to date. So China yeah. is the world's second largest importer of goods and services. You know, it's a, got a vicious appetite. But if its supply of those goods and services is threatened in the way in which they are at the moment by the decoupling push, um, their response is to fall back heavily on domestic demand. It's very interesting, Michael, in terms of thinking around, you know, what does, what does a business owner need to do? I'm sitting here as, you know, the CEO of a mid-market business, I don't do a lot of trade or export with with China. I'm not selling services into China, but I have many, many clients who do and will continue. The economy is directly linked to that, and obviously part of the work we do is around preparing and selling businesses, which is affected by access to capital and economic growth and, you know, the primary markets. Um, so from an SME point of view, I think it's really interesting. You talk about, you know, the need for more assertive business voices, Yep. What do we say? You know, if I've got a forum, if I'm sitting down tomorrow with Scott Morrison saying, okay, mate, we're dealing with China, here's what you need to think about. From a small business or medium-sized business owner's point of view, what do you think we need to think about? Look, I, I, I'm very, I'm, I'm trying to be careful in my choice of words, Craig, and I, I, I'm being a creature of government over 40 years. I'm not in the, in the business of throwing stones at the government and saying you've got it all wrong because it's an incredibly complex uh, dilemma that they're dealing with, trying to balance the economic and trade relationship with, um, you know, a security alliance partner who, under the current leadership, is somewhat uh, erratic. Um, yep. it, it's difficult. So I'm not going to pretend to have a magic answer. And if only government would listen to me, all problems would go away. Um, that's not going to happen. I don't think there's the government is under any illusion as to how important that economic and trade relationship is. It is mm. a complex 
real relationship. And some have argued that um, you know China need us as much as we need them. In a way, that is true. In another way, China's capacity to absorb economic pain is arguably greater than ours. So we are perhaps more exposed. Um, when I say business should speak with a more assertive voice, what, I, what I'm looking for is something along the lines of what Andrew Liveritz has produced today. You know, sensible, constructive observations on the relationship that don't go about uh, rebuking the government for getting it wrong, nor attacking the so-called China hawks on a sort of a personal level. They're, they're, he is pointing out the value and the importance of the relationship and a way in which it could be handled, perhaps handled more delicately than it has been in some areas. But for, for, for small business, I mean, I, let me follow a very circuitous route here, Craig, and say at the end of the day, I suspect that many Australian companies, whether they're selling to China or manufacturing in China, they are so absorbed for all sorts of understandable reasons in the day-to-day -day operation of their business that they don't have the time or the appetite to, to consume the volumes of data out there on the relationship and which way, you know, which you know, the pull and pull on a daily basis. So what I would say to them is engage. There is there are all manner of sources of support and advice. You don't have to know it all yourself. So you can reach out to now in, in government. There's the Australian Trade Investment Commission. There's DFAT. Um, there are Australia China Business Councils. There are small business associations. There are any number of people who can provide advice uh, and help people navigate their way through the system and better understand it. Australian Chambers of Commerce on the ground in you know, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, out west in Chengdu. These are Australian companies on the ground in China who would be more than happy to sit down and have a chat to an Australian company looking to source product or resolve an issue in their manufacturing plant. Um, yeah, so the point I'm trying to make is there are endless sources of support and hand-holding out there if only people were aware of it and were more prepared to extend their hand in search of it. Okay. Um, I'm interested to follow a bit of a, a conversation around people and intellectual property and so on. We've got, um, you know, we've talked about manufacturing, we talked about iron ore and coal and all the big things yep. that obviously yep. food, et cetera. Um, what's often underestimated is the deep pool of human capital, the intellectual property, the knowledge, the experience around certainly things like secondary education, tourism, obviously a problem at the moment, yep. given COVID. But certainly that pool of human capital is something that we need to address. Uh, how much is that being affected currently? Look, I... I would venture to say that the 1.2 million Australians of Chinese extraction, uh, many of them in the current climate, do not feel entirely comfortable. Yep. Um, the state of the relationship and, and you know people looking at them through narrowed eyes and casting suspicion over their, you know, where do your loyalties lay, lie? Are they to Australia or are they to China? You know, it, it is difficult for that pool of social capital out there, and I fear we're not using it as well as we could. Um, but the point is, you know, from time to time, the Australian media will focus on uh, what they would describe as the, lament the lamentable state of Asian language training in Australian schools and universities. Okay, that, that may well be true, but let's not forget we have 1.2 million Chinese Australians out there who 
have native Chinese language skills. So language is not a barrier in the China market. There are there are there is plenty of talent to draw on. People need to use it better than we have, or harness it far more effectively than we have to date. Just sure. bring this back to uh, probably some of the businesses that we're working with that are sourcing product from China uh, or manufacturing in China. So. Um, and what's interesting, I'm advising three different businesses at the moment, all sort of turning over to 10 to 20 million, uh, one in uh, castings, one in shop fittings, and another one uh, in, uh, I guess, more broadly office type products. And each of them sources out of China. And there's a little bit of nervousness for each of them at the moment. Um, so putting aside the COVID issues as to whether China will be continue to be a good source of product for them. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Um, Phil, their, their concerns are raised by the media focus and the language being used in media and government circles about market diversification and yeah. decoupling, which I referred to earlier. So without wishing to put words in their mouth, I, I, I suspect they're worried, well, um, is the West going to cut off China and I'll no longer be able to access product? Or is there going to be a, a breakout of conflict and I need to have access to my materials and therefore I need to go to a different market? I don't believe that we are on the cusp of, you know, what the Americans would call a kinetic conflict. I just don't think we're going there. So when we talk about market diversification, I would encourage companies to think more in terms of market expansion all right, so the language often used is China plus one. So if you're, if all your eggs are in the China basket and you're uncomfortable, I don't think you need to be thinking in terms of picking up that basket and moving to India or Indonesia or Vietnam. Yeah. You need to be thinking in terms of where can I have some redundancy? Where, what's plan B? Yeah. Now, plan B may well be in one of the ASEAN markets. It may well be in South Asia. It may well be in a different part of China itself. It is so large that uh, you know supply issues in the south of China may not necessarily spill over into the northeast. Yeah. So think in terms of China plus one redundancy, and think in terms of expansion as opposed to diversification. And, and then on the other side, on the export side, um, China appears to have been quite capricious in their uh, singling out or selecting exports to uh, put uh, additional barriers in front of. Um, do you think that that will continue and people that are in, uh, exporting to China goods and services need to be concerned and also doing a market diversification? Um, I've got some fairly strong views on this one, Phil. I, I, I think okay. what we're Which seeing, today, <laughs> I, I think what we're seeing to date, whether it's barley or whether it's wine, is more in the diplomatic signalling um, yep. category as opposed to having a an immediate yep. hard impact on on trade flows. Yep. So the numbers as they stand today are that our trade two way trade well, two way trade with China continues to grow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, notwithstanding all the headlines. Yeah. Now, so you wouldn't pick that up from reading all of the other headlines, would you? There's nothing which says, you know, our two way trade's growing and Australia's trade balance is improving because of the trade we continue to do with China. Well, it, it's distorted somewhat by the price of iron ore. So again, yeah. economists will, will, will pass the numbers. But if you look at beef, so going back a few months, 
China announced that four beef processing plants were going to be banned because of some issues with labelling. And I assume there, were, there may have been other issues, but labelling. Within a week or two of that announcement, which was greeted with shock horror in the Australian media, um, China also announced that um, we had reached the upper limit of essentially our beef sales into China. As agreed under the free trade agreement, when sales reach a certain threshold, a tariff kicks in. So, yes, four plants were the target of some punitive action, but beef sales have still continued to grow enormously, um, such that they've exceeded the uh, the agreed limits under the free trade agreement. So, yeah, there's good news and there's bad news in that equation. Yeah, yeah. So, in essence, we commerce will continue. There'll be some sort of action, to, as you said, diplomatic signalling, uh, but money and goods and services will continue to exchange, be exchanged between China and Australia. In, on the current outlook, yes, Phil, but I'm going to yep. give myself some wriggle room here and say that the outcome of the um, Ministry of Commerce inquiries into Australian wine will be critical here. So that, they, they may well be a year away, Phil. So, um, what does that mean? What's the, what's, well, they're, they're, why wine particularly? Well, wine is a $1.2 billion export market for Australian wine growers, all right? So it's a, China is a critical market. When I went there in 2011, we were selling about $200 million worth of wine to China. We now sell, within a decade, $1.2 billion. Now, if that market is threatened in a, in a real way as opposed to a diplomatic signalling way, then we have much deeper cause for concern. And yeah. I, I can't with all confidence say that that won't happen because no one knows. Yeah. All right. But if, if um, beef, dairy, wine were affected um, directly by the state of the relationship, as opposed to genuine consumer demand for those products in China, then we do have serious grounds for concern. The broader issue, of course, is that we don't have a relationship at the moment where China is even willing to sit at the table and engage with the government to have these sorts of discussions. It's it, we're sort of in the, this tit for tat exchange, um, which does not all go well. Michael, such an interesting topic for people to think about in terms of you know the relationship, the numbers that you talk. I mean, they're rolling off your tongue very easily, but they're massive. Yes, you know, the, just the wine industry exports alone are such an enormous part of our economy. So we really need to get our head around this and hopefully government can get their head around it and come up with a solution as well. Um, before we wrap up, I would like to ask you the number one tip for mid-market business owners to better understand and better uh, better improve, I guess, the relationship and their, their dealings with China and the wider Asian economy. Um, you're not alone. Don't think, you, there are, as I said earlier, there, there, there are sources of support and advice, whether it's banks, whether it's legal firms, whether it's business associations. Um, there are many, many sources of support and companies should not be sitting back there in their offices or their homes thinking, God, what do I do? Who going to talk to? Um, engage. Engage with that broader network of chambers of commerce, peak industry associations, banks, lawyers, etc., because there is rich experience and knowledge out there if only businesses had the time and the appetite to engage it. Okay. And look, talking about rich experience and knowledge, how do people get in touch with you, Michael, if they're interested in uh, engaging your services or getting some help in this space? Uh, retirement home, Craig. 
Uh, <laughs> look, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to take calls from anybody at any time, really, but I'll, I'll leave a, an email address if someone wants to pick sure. up anything I've said here. It's um, MJ Clifton, so sorry, MJ Clifton 60 at gmail.com. Okay, MJ Clifton 60 at, at gmail.com. Yeah. Fantastic, Michael. Thanks for the time today. It's a, certainly an interesting topic, and I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about it in the future. Been a pleasure, Craig. Thank, thanks, you, and thanks to you too, Phil. Thanks, Michael. Good to catch thanks, up. Philip. Thanks, Philip. Thanks for your insights. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Mid Market Matters. I hope you found this episode helpful and informative for your business. To find out more, go to midmarketmatters.com.au. And to download other episodes, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.